0: Passage, right. If you, aren't, uh, if you aren't familiar with the scriptures, if you're not familiar with, with church and Christianity, that's a passage where you're like, ooh, I don't, I don't know about that. If you've grown up in church, if you've been around church for a while, that's a passage where you're like, ooh, I don't know about that. You're uh, in, in our culture, in our day and age. So before we jump in there, I uh, just want to say a few things. Um, we are, well, first I want to celebrate something. Uh if you guys, we, we have what we call BLGs at our church, body life groups. They're our, our word for a small group. I know it's a weird name. If you think about it, it makes amazing sense because they're not just life, individual life. We're part of a body, so we want to do body life together. It's coming from Ephesians, actually, members of the same body. And um, and so our group this week was, so on, on average, I, once a week, I have a conversation about this, about, this passage and things that surround it. Once a week, guys, Like, that's a lot on average, once a week. This week I had like five or six in one week. So, but in our BOG, our conversation, which I didn't lead, um, actually led by, uh, actually, I mean, we facilitated it, Daniel facilitated it, and uh, Cecile and Gabby, who I don't think are here today, Really led the conversation, and it was just—it's one of the most fruitful conversations around this topic that I've had since I've been in Toronto, like six years. So almost six years. We'll be in Toronto six years in two weeks. That's awesome. Like we're excited about that. Um, and and so, um, but most of the time I have unfruitful, unpleasant conversations around this. Uh, but. Before I jump into that, just want to celebrate, like we can actually come to the text, come to the scriptures, because all Missy did was read what the Bible says. She didn't comment on it, she didn't say anything, she didn't add anything to it, she just read what it says. And all of a sudden, a lot of us are already like, ooh, we've taken a step back. So I want to invite us this morning to take a step forward. Uh, That's why we're celebrating BLG, because, because in that moment, guys, in our home, we were family. And we approached this topic as family. We didn't approach it as people like butting heads against each other. We didn't approach it with someone on this side of the table and someone on this side. We didn't approach it with, I have this view and have this view. We approached the text with saying, we're family. We're in the same body of Christ, body life. Now, how do we talk about this? And how do we actually do what the scriptures and and, and immerse ourselves ourselves, in what the scriptures are meant to do, which I love what you said this morning, Isaiah, about that, that they were meant to build us up. So if you've heard this passage before and it's torn you down, that's not what it was intended for. If you've heard this passage before and it's hurt you, that's not what it was intended for. The scriptures, if we are followers of Jesus, we know that they were meant to build us up. Okay, So we're coming to the text with that mentality. We're coming to it knowing that we're family. And if you're like new to the church today, if you've only been here for a little bit, um, you can still approach it that way in the sense of family of God. That is, that is a, um, a metaphor for the universal body of Christ as well as the local body of Christ, right? That we are the family of God. So let's, let's try to do that this morning because we're in this series called Uprising. And it's all about spiritual warfare and the enemy loves to destroy things that that God wants to build and this morning he wants to build intimacy in us. We've talked about rising light, we've talked about rising hope, rising destiny, rising faith, rising influence, and now we're talking about rising intimacy this morning. We'll talk about why that's necessary. So when I was 14, I I went to Six Flags in Texas. Six Flags is an amusement park franchise chain in the States. And so I went to Six Flags in Texas, and it's, it's a lot like Canada's Wonderland, actually a lot of the same rides like Canada's Wonderland. And I was with a group of friends, and in those days, I, I wore glasses. And for those of you guys who've heard me talk about this before, you know my vision is horrible. I, when I say horrible, if you know anything about prescription lenses, I have minus eight and minus nine. Yeah, yeah, Sarah's laughing back there. Yeah, she knows how bad that is. That means if I don't have my contacts in, you guys, I wouldn't even be able to see you guys in the seats, like I wouldn't even know anything was there in front of me. Missing Adam here would look the same, (laughs) which is scary, because Adam has a beard and glasses. (laughs) That's, That's scary, like I can't distinguish anything. Like, legally blind, I think, is like minus 12, I think. So I'm not that far from that. So I'm wearing glasses, uh, around 14 years old. Go to Six Flags. If you've been in Texas in the summer, you know it's hot and it's humid. We go in the park, we're super excited to be there. I love amusement parks, I still do. Um, I couldn't wait to take my girls to Canada's Wonderland. Like It's one of my favorite things to do. So um, I was super excited. We go in, and because it's so hot, the first ride we see is a water ride, and it's that big one, like the big boat that goes down, and it makes this big tidal wave, and afterwards you stand on the bridge and you get splashed by it, right? Like, you guys have been on that? So, we're like, all right, it's hot, we're already soaked with sweat, might as well get (laughs) soaked with water and just be cool the rest of the day. So, go on this ride, go on the bridge afterwards, and this one, this is the only one I've been to like this, there's signs, they make you stand against the railing with your back to the railing. You know, big railing, higher, than, taller than you are. Because if you stand in the front, the wave is so powerful, it could throw you back. So they make you stand with your back against the railing, so you're waiting there, you're anticipating, it's awesome, you're like, yeah, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna come, and you're, you're waiting, waiting, and all of a sudden, the wave comes, and, and uh, it, it comes full on and, and it goes through. We're soaked. Um, and I'm, like, jumping up and down, like, yeah, yeah, And I realize, like, I start wiping my face from the water, and I realize I can't see anything. My glasses are gone. Like, I had turned my head and just took my glasses off, and they were gone. They weren't on the bridge or anything. They were in the water down there somewhere. This is the first ride of the day. It's, like, 9 a.m., right? And we are supposed to be there till like, 11 p.m., and I can't see anything. So I have to go the whole day without being able to see. Distinguish between people, The uh, vision's blurry, everything's, everything's blurry. If you know anything about glasses and all that, like when that happens, you start to get a headache and so I'm like walking around in pain all day. When I think about memories back then, I can't even really remember who I was with because I can't picture them. Like I, like I just can't visualize it. So the whole day was essentially a waste of, A waste of my time. But I guess it was still fun. I don't know. I don't remember it much. Uh, (laughs) Except for that moment. And here's the thing. When we come to this passage, we all have lenses. We all have glasses. And a lot of times we see this passage blurry. Because we haven't put the lens of Christ on our face. And so some of you guys here, you are you're looking at this passage and you don't realize that you're blinded by something. You don't realize that your vision is actually blurry, it's not 2020. And so you approach this passage in, in, in deficiency and, and you come to it and you read it out of your deficiency. Some of you guys, you think you have 2020 vision without Christ. And you approach this passage arrogantly and you approach it with already preconceived notions about what it should say and what it should mean and what we should believe. And and so even if you tried to put the lenses of Christ on, what would happen? Those of you who have 2020 vision, like my wife Missy, know that when you put glasses on, it also distorts your vision. All right? So you're trying to put Christ on, but you're dis- you're you're distorting your own your own perception that way because you think you have 2020 already. Some of you guys in here, and this is probably a lot of our world, you know you're probably insufficient to approach this this text, and you know you're probably seeing it insufficiently, but you don't even want to pick up the lens of Christ. You've just chosen not to. And so, how can you see this text clearly? This morning, what I want us to do is is put on the lens of Christ. Before we have to do that, we have to realize that our vision is minus eight and minus nine, that our vision is horrible, that we are that we've that we have, some of us have been hurt by this passage. Some of us us have been hurt by how this passage, how people believed it and lived it out. Some of us, uh, we're just sinful. Can we all admit that in here? We're just sinful human beings. We were born into it, and we sin. And how can we come to a passage or any passage in here so arrogantly, assuming it should say something because our culture says this about it? Guys, we need to lower, our, lower ourselves in our own estimation. Like We need to humble ourselves and say, okay, we don't have the vision we need to have. Christ Jesus, give us your sight so that we can see it and that we can see it clearly. So this morning, what I want, us to, what I want you to see this morning is not theology. We're not going to really go through theology, although we may talk around some things. What I really want you to see is God's heart. I want you to see my heart. I want you to see the heart of our church. I want you to see the heart of the scriptures and what they were meant to do. I want you to see God through this, not beliefs, not theology. I want you to see how he cares for us and loves us. And that's why today we're talking about rising intimacy. And so before we go into the bottom line, I just want to pray that over us. Because the reality is there is hurt. And it's okay to acknowledge that in this space. It's okay to acknowledge that there is deficiency in this space. It's okay for us to rely on Christ together. Okay, so let's do that before we approach the text. Jesus, we just cast ourselves at your feet. You are Lord. You are God. And we submit ourselves to you this morning. And pray that you give us your sight, your eyes, and clear vision. And that you would heal hurt. That today would be a place of healing, not a place of of, um, more hurt uh, and more pain, but that you would bring healing to us this morning um, in our hearts, in our souls, in our eyes, and in our ears. So we give those to you in your name, Jesus. Amen. So the bottom line for this morning is this. Intimacy is the result of humility, unity, community, and proximity. I got that bottom line from my BLG this week, guys. Like I love talking about, I love talking about the sermon passage before I preach on it. So I'm just like taking notes what people are saying. It's so great. Um, so these are all these four words came up in our BOG this week as we talked about this passage. So rising intimacy, if it's going to rise in us, it's going to be the result of humility, unity, community, and proximity. Let's go into humility. This is coming out of verse 21. Uh, notice here. In this passage, we talked about this verse last week, it is a sentence fragment, uh, and I'll explain this in a second, but it, there's, there's four verbs coming off of one, and, it, and Paul says, all the way back in verse 18, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so everything that's gonna come next is in the context of being filled with the Spirit, and this filling isn't when you become a believer and you get filled with the indwelling of the Spirit, Yes, that happens, but this filling that Paul is talking about is a continual filling, because what happens when you live your life, guys? Yeah, we, the Spirit dwells in me, but every day we come across things where, where temptation comes and I sin, where, where I'm filling my mind with, with things I shouldn't be filling it with, where I'm filling it with what someone said instead of what God says about me, what someone else says about me where I'm filling it with lies instead of truth, where I'm, I'm inputting things that are unhealthy and not beneficial as opposed to things that are good and noble and pure and trustworthy and praiseworthy and of excellence. Right? So, so every day Paul says, we need to be filled with the Spirit. This is a constant renewal. Think of it like a bucket, and, and you're putting all this bad stuff is in you, and, and you're filling the Spirit in, and hopefully the other stuff comes out and you're filled with the Spirit. Right? This is the picture that Paul gives us, and the rest of this is in that context. Okay, so, be filled. He says, well, you're filled this way, uh, or you're filled with the Spirit, and this is what happens. You address one another in Psalms. You sing. You make melody to the Lord. You, you give thanks. And then, verse 21, you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the, that's the last thing he says here. We are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, now, normally when we read verse 21, no one really has a problem with that. I don't hear, I don't, I don't, no one comes to me and says, hey, I have a problem with 521, but there's a switch that happens when we get to 522, and that's when people come to me and say, hey, I have a problem with this, but let's just sit here for a second. We're talking about the filling of the Spirit, we're talking about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, what Paul is really talking about is humility, it's emptying yourself. Missy prayed that this morning uh, before I got up here. She said, I pray that we would come to this with open hands. Most of us come to the scriptures with closed hands. We want to hold on to something. What are you holding on to this morning? If you're holding on to something, you cannot submit to Christ and to one another. Okay? And we do this, he says, out of the fear of Christ. This fear, this reverence, the reverence kind of... Um, almost euphemizes the term. Like, it's, it's a, yeah, reverence, but there's, a, there's like a healthy fear of God that fuels this, guys. Not in the sense where oh, I'm so scared of God, but like, man, God is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He knows everything about me, the very depths of my being, my heart. He knows everything. Like, that's, that's a healthy fear of God. Uh, and so, when you see reverence there, think, think that. So, but we need to empty ourselves in order to be filled with the Spirit. We have to die to ourselves, okay? We have to come with open hands, humility. Let's go with the second thing. This is verse 22 through 24. Uh, We're gonna talk about unity here. So he starts off by saying wives. Notice here, there's no conjunction, okay? Here's, Here's like a little Bible 101 lesson. There's no conjunction, there's no therefore, Like in verse 25 in chapter four, it says, therefore, having put away falsehood, there's no now, like in verse 17, now this I say, there's no therefore, like in 5.1, therefore be imitators of God, there's no finally, like in verse 10 of chapter six, finally be strong in the Lord, there's nothing, it just goes straight into wives, that means that it's connected. Okay in your Bibles, a lot of times you have these or most Bibles have these subtitles and these divisions that that break things up those aren't inspired. those are put in by by whoever put this Bible together to help us understand and, and read well, but they're not inspired texts the Holy Spirit didn't write those things so um, a lot of times they help us. In this case, it may kind of hinder us more than, more than help us. So it says here, wives, so it goes straight into it, which means that it's connected directly to what he just said. Okay? Most people don't read 522 in the context of 521, 520, 519, 518, 517, and so on and so forth. But it's the same section, okay? Same section we're dealing with. So he says, submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. Now, here's a specific example of what this can look like, Paul is saying. Okay, so he starts here, and, and he goes in the specific example of, of what this could, could look like, and he uses marriage. Why? Why does he use marriage? Why does he go straight to, to wives and husbands here? Because Paul's trying to build community. He's trying to build a body. And in doing so, he's using the most intense and intimate form of community, which is marriage. That's, that's the most intense, intimate form of community that we can have with each other, okay? And, and if you don't believe me, just ask someone who's, who's married. <laughs> I, I, um, marriage is hard, guys. I, I counsel people all the time on marriage, um, both Missy and I do, and, and we counsel a lot of young couples Before they get married so a lot of couples before they get married and we always tell them hey guys This is what it's like now This is what it's gonna be like when you get married and most of the people that we sit across the table from who we tell That to they're like ah and and they don't say this out loud, but I know what they're thinking I have the gift of discernment (laughs) So I know what they're thinking they they're thinking we're so in love like, we're so in love, like, it's not gonna change. How's it gonna change that much? Like, we're so in love, Like we can get through anything. We've, like, they'll tell me things like, we do things together all the time now. They're like, oh, well, well we, we don't fight that much. Like, they don't realize that it gets really intense once you make a commitment, spiritually in, and publicly before other people, and that you actually are becoming one flesh. Like, that's the difference pre-marriage and post-marriage. You're becoming one flesh. I say marriage ceremony, pre-marriage ceremony, post. Like like you're not doing that really beforehand. Like one flesh happens in marriage. And and I tell them this too, I'm like, I'm gonna tell you this, but you're not really gonna fully understand it until you're on this side of it. And then we'll do a six-month follow-up with with couples sometimes that we've or with couples we've married definitely. And and they'll say, yeah. Yeah, okay, I, we get what you're saying back then. Because there's, because marriage is hard. It's intense, it's, it, it can be, and it's designed to be very intimate, but in order to get to intimacy, other things need to happen. What's required for unity to happen? Sacrifice. Humility, we just talked about that. If we're gonna be filled with the Spirit, we have to be humble. If we're gonna, if we're gonna be unified on things, we actually have to sacrifice some things. When Missy and I came together, um, we knew that we were sacrificing our own, because think about this. Missy and I, when we got married, I think I was 23, she was 22. Yes, we were very young. So, uh, and we still are. (laughs) Even though I look like Wolverine up here. I'm sorry, like, guys, I'm growing this out to the end of the year. Like, this is going to be really... I'm going for like David Show on the top, and like Jonathan Kohlmeyer on the bottom. So big beard, nice flowy hair. So when we uh, when we got married, we knew, and we decided together that the 22, 23 years of things that we had—hopes, dreams, passions, desires, goals—we were going to lay on the table, and then we we're going to sacrifice so we can build something together, so we can build one life together. Now that doesn't mean we didn't pick up goals that I had, or we didn't pick up dreams that she had, or we didn't pick up, but we decided we are gonna do that together. That's one flesh. That's how you do it, that's how, how we're gonna live a life united. Submitting to one another out of reverence and fear of Christ. When we started this church five years ago, those of you guys who remember Daniel Yang Daniel Yang and I sat across the table from each other at CSI in the Annex around 11.30 p.m. at night, and we had callings. God said, move to Toronto, start a church in downtown, and this is what I want it to look like. And we both had visions. We both had callings. We both had dreams. We both had desires. We both had goals. And we sat at that table, and something had changed. The Spirit had brought us together. To do this together. And so we did the same thing. We laid everything out on the table. We said, This is what I think God's told me, this is what I think God's told me, this is what I think God's told him, him, and we went back and forth. And then we said, And we cleared the table. That was the only way we could do it together. That was the only way we could build something as one body, one body of Christ together. Otherwise, you may have had two bodies of Christ and like, one church it would have felt really weird so we sacrificed everything in order for that to happen and it was beautiful guys in marriage it's beautiful you know what's what the issues I deal with with now couples who are married when I deal with couples who are married now and counsel them the issues I deal with are issues of sacrifice is because one can't sacrifice something for the sake of the other. And the other wants to hold on to this because they think they deserve this. And the other says, no, I thought we were doing this. And and no one wants to sacrifice. No one wants to submit themselves to each other. And so Paul goes to this super intense form of community, and he says, wives, and I'm just reading the text here, guys. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I know that sounds harsh. That language sounds harsh. Submit, this word in, in the Greek, is, is a willing submission. This is not a forced coercion. This is not, wife, you have to do this. This is not, um, I'm making you do this. This is of her own volition to do this as to the Lord, okay? Now, please as we go through this whole thing, follow me before we jump to any conclusions. Follow me to the very, very last word I say today. Can we do that? Can you guys agree to do that? Because we're, we're that's, what's, that's what's key about context. I'm trying to give you a big picture here. Don't get stuck here. Don't get stuck here yet, okay? Let's, let's go with a bigger picture of what this means, okay? So, remember, context, filling of the spirit. Context, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, example, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and here's the thing, he says to your own husbands, this is not all females to all males, okay? Everyone hear that? This is not all females to all males. This is not even all wives to all husbands. This is wife, singular, to a husband, singular, okay? This is worked out in a home, all right? So... Keep that in in mind here. And this is not coerced or forced. Guys, you got to remember, Paul views the marriage as a partnership. Paul views the marriage as a partnership. This is completely abnormal in his society. This is completely abnormal in our society. Do you realize that? This is completely abnormal in... Most of the world's societies, that marriage is a partnership. And Paul is saying that here. Because in most societies, the wife is forced to submit. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. She follows the example of Jesus in this. And that changes everything. Now, Paul is also in the context of the entire scriptures. And the entire scriptures, all the way back at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, What does the Bible say? It says that male and female are both created in the same equal image of God. Do you know that? Do you realize that? This isn't about equality, guys. Our culture, our society has made it about that, but this isn't about equality. Paul is operating in a biblical framework that male and female are created equal in the same equal image of God. God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, okay? Let's, let's recognize where Paul is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, another one of his letters, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, the, the wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. And also, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. The wife does, Okay? Partnership. We're talking about partnership here. So Paul has this framework of, of partnership. And, and so a lot of times we read this and we're like, oh, Paul is being patriarchal. He's being misogynistic. He's being sexist. He's being chauvinistic. He's, he's exerting authority. No, 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 guys. Like, read this in its larger context. Paul's not doing that at all. He's actually empowering the woman like, like all of the scriptures has always done. Do you realize that, that, guys, our culture isn't responsible for the empowerment of women. Our Christ is. Do you realize that? Like, this Bible has influenced women standing in culture more than anything in the world. Like, just, just look at this thing. And, and most of you guys are like, ooh, I didn't, I didn't know that. It's because you haven't read this thing. It's because you haven't read it. Like, it's all over here. Look at, look at how, how God creates Eve. And I'm not going to go into all this theology, but just look at that later, how God creates Eve. The book of Ruth, look at how, how Ruth is, is treated, not just as a woman, but an outsider, a foreigner, a refugee. Like look at Esther and the, and the uh, authority and power she exerts over a king of nations. That isn't even a king that follows God. Like, Look at Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, Proverbs is the book on wisdom in the Bible, and it ends with talking about the strong and virtuous and industrious and and responsible woman who is praised in the city gates where normally only elders are praised there. the Bible is trying to, to do this. Christian culture has done this over the years. Now, I know what you're saying. You've seen a lot of abusive Christian culture, too. I want to call that Christian culture. Like, just because somebody has abused something doesn't mean we just cast it aside. Right, we may cast them aside. <laughs> Jesus will take care of that. We, we get to redeem it and use it for God's glory, And we can take that in the New Testament. Look at Mary. I mean, just take Mary, for instance. Take the women at the resurrection. Like, these are all instances. Take Lydia, who plants a church inside her home in in the book of Acts. Like, there's so many examples here. Deborah in the Old Testament, Phoebe in the New Testament. We can go on and on with examples of, of how the scriptures are not disempowering and holding women down, but empowering and pushing women forward. So when you read verse 22 here, don't import your society, don't import your culture, read it in the biblical text, put on the lens of Christ, because the lens of Christ says this is an empowering verse, not a disempowering verse. This is a building up verse, not a tearing down verse. And wives, like, if you're married in here, or you aspire to be married, this is a willing thing. Okay? We're going to talk about why in a second. Because why, uh, like why, yeah, why would, because you can say, okay, sure, it's a choice, but it's not a very good one. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound very appealing to me that this is the choice I have. If I'm going to follow Jesus, this is how I should follow him. And I totally get that. But let's hold on to that question and let's, let's read more. So verse 23, so that was all verse 22. We have like 10 more to go. Uh, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Come on, Paul, I like, couldn't you use different language than that. Like it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's not very easy language to swallow, right? And it says, it's his body and is himself its savior. So let's, let's take that word head and let's switch it out for leadership. That may not be as appealing to you but hear me out on this. Uh, Take out that word head and and put in leadership. Now, the reason that may not be as appealing still is because our perception of leadership is off. What is proper leadership? What is godly leadership? What what does leadership look like? We see here that it says, let's start with Christ. Let's not even start with the husband. Let's start with Christ. Christ is the head of the church. What does it mean that Christ is the head of his church? It says he's our savior. What does it mean that Christ is the head of the church? Does that mean Christ is domineering over us? Does that mean he's lording over us? Does that mean he is telling us exactly what to do all the time? Which is funny because most of you guys want God to do that, but you actually don't want God to do that. Like, God, just tell me what to do. But you don't want to. Like, he's actually told you what to do. You just don't want to do it. All right, but God doesn't work that way. He doesn't force us into love. I mean, does, does, does Jesus say, does he drag us along? Or does he say, come follow me? And when we think leadership, oftentimes we think authority and domineering. But think about Christ leading. How did Christ lead? He served us. He gave himself up for us. He gave up everything for us. He went to the cross for us. He healed us. He, he stepped out of heaven for us. He pursued us and chased after us and, and, and uh, brought us in, and he patiently bore with us. Even when we're faithless, it says he's faithful. That's, that's leadership. That's the type of leadership that Christ shows. His last acts of leadership, do you know what they included? Jesus Christ, his last acts of leadership, the king of the universe, They included him washing filthy feet. They included him healing somebody who wanted to harm him. It included him restoring those who had fled and deserted him. It included him forgiving those who had betrayed him. It included him loving those who hated him. That's leadership. Does anybody want a leader like that? Anybody want a husband like that? Or a spouse like that? That's what this verse means. Like, if you have someone who does that for you, how amazing is that? That is, that is how Christ was our savior. That is what he did for us. And now, now so, unity, though, requires sacrifice. Christ sacrificed for us here. And it says, he did it in this way. And this is community. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And how did he do that? So many ways here. He sanctified her. He cleansed her by the washing of the word. He presented her in radiance and in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And that's true community. That's true community. You know, in our BLG this week, Cecile, she's not here, so I can talk about it. <laughs> She'll listen to this later, maybe. Um, Cecile, I love you if you are listening to this. Thank you for telling our BLG this. Um, this week, it was super insightful. She said, uh, it's harder to love somebody than to submit to somebody. And we're all kind of like, hmm? What'd she say? Uh, She said, think about it. You submit to people every day. You submit to your boss every day. You submit to your coworkers every day. You submit your needs to other people's needs. If you're parents in here, a lot of you guys submit to your kids every day. If that's the case, we should talk about it. Uh, But I see it all the time. Um, Oh, I could go on and on about that. Don't do it. There's a rabbit. There's a rabbit hopping right in front of me. (laughs) Uh, we, We submit to our government every day. We submit to the laws of our land every day. You submit to people you don't like or don't agree with all the time. But do you love like Jesus loves every day? Can you love your coworkers like Jesus loves them? Can you love people in this church like Jesus loves them? Can you love your family like Jesus loves them? And she was making the point that it's so much harder. Like, she said, she actually, <laughs> she said, she said, wow, I feel like it's easier for me. Like, because the husband, like, he actually has to sacrifice and, and love like Jesus loved. And that's, that's his responsibility to do that, to lay his life down, to give up everything for the wife to lay down all his dreams and all the desires and all that to push her forward? She's like, she said, why wouldn't I want to submit to someone like that? Because she understands the beauty of the gospel. She understands what, what that looks like, and we're going to get to that in a second. But it was so insightful when she said, it's actually easier for us to do that. And what's so amazing is we read this, when we're submitting all day long to other things, we read this, in the most intimate, intense form of community, this blessed community that God has given you, and you are hard-pressed to do that, to live this out. That's the enemy, guys. That's the enemy at work. That's lies and deception and pain and suffering and trauma that has, that has hurt you and given you wrong lenses to see the beauty of the gospel through this passage. And so, he says, Husbands, you love in this way, that's community. And then verse 28, proximity. This is just nearness, this is presence. And when I talk about intimacy, guys, I'm talking about like just deep relationship, I'm talking about f- deep friendship, just, just really deep relationship. Most of our relationships are pretty superficial, right? But here we're talking about something super deep. Even those who are married, there's so many marriages I deal with that are so superficial because you can't talk about things. There's no community there, because you haven't actually become unified and sacrificed, because you actually haven't, uh, uh, you're actually not operating in humility, and you're not filled with the Spirit. Remember this, filled with the Spirit, humility, unity, sacrifice, love, community, now proximity and presence, and all this is in the context of intimacy. So proximity and presence, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. It's the same body. He who loves his wife loves himself. I see so many marriages and actually churches, quite frankly, that operate in this way, where you have a marriage and it's supposed to be two people, one flesh, and it's actually not one body. That's proximity. Proximity is one body. You have two bodies and two heads. That's not how a marriage works. A marriage cannot work that way. And then I see some marriages with one body and two heads. Guess what? A marriage can't work that way either. It's one head and one body. And guys, here in this passage, what the wife does is not contingent on what the husband does. What the husband does and his duties is not contingent on what the wife does. The wife is supposed to do this no matter if the husband does this. The husband is supposed to do this no matter if the wife does this. It's contingent not on each other. It's not dependent on each other. It's dependent on what Christ has already done. It's contingent on Christ, guys. He's already done both those things for us. Okay? And that's why we live out this way. It's the beauty of the gospel. We'll get to that more in a minute. He says here, For no one in verse 29 ever... Hates his, hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Let me just say something on that real quick. This is like uh, an aside from, from the passage because when you read that, you're like, wait a second, no one ever hated his own flesh. You might be sitting here and you might say, actually, I hate my own flesh right now. Actually, I know, you might be saying, well, I know a lot of people who do that, uh, who hate their flesh. What does this mean? Remember, this is in a context. Paul is not making an absolute statement on people hating their flesh, um, because a lot of us know people who harm themselves through cutting. Uh, there's ascetics who flagellate themselves. There's uh, people who deal with, deal with eating disorders, and and who just um, uh, there's there's body image issues uh, and things like that. So there are people who this verse would say okay, would apparently on the surface contradict the truth of this verse. And Paul knows that too, guys. So three things. One, this is an absolute, or four things. One, this is an absolute statement. Um, two, no one is born that way. And, and, and Paul knows this. You know, we, we become that way where we hate our own bodies through sin, through trauma, through things people say about us, through our culture and what it says, through um, lies and affliction, through, through sufferings from sin, things like that. Okay? And, and those things uh, get put on us at an early age sometimes and, and then affect the outcome. Uh, two or three, uh, Leah in the New Testament, Genesis chapter 29, is an early example of this. Check this passage out. It says, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. And Leah is described in Genesis 29, she's a sister of Rachel, she's described as having weak eyes, or soft eyes, and, Leah, and Rachel is described as being beautiful and attractive, and, and Leah is described, when you put those next to each other, it's like, well, she's not so much, right? And so here's an early example of this. In her affliction, she's like wanting her husband to love her. She's striving for it. And and she conceived again and bore a son because the Lord has heard that I'm hated and has given me the son also. And she called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Like she's searching for something and then at the very end in verse 35, she says, now this time I'll praise the Lord. You see like she's going through a struggle there where she's like trying to gain something. And, and so Paul is totally conversant. He knows that whole thing. And, he's, and he can see Leah as an early example of someone who is struggling with, with their body, who is struggling with their flesh. And, and then the third thing is, remember, this is, or the fourth thing, this is in a context of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting yourself to Christ, submitting yourself to one another of Christ, on and on and on, then there's no way you can hate your own flesh, because you've emptied yourself and you're filled with the Spirit of the living God. Does that make sense? And we are redeemed new creations as vessels for the beauty of the gospel. So, now back back to this, back to this passage. Um... We're members of this body. And he says, therefore, in verse 31, and this is now going into, um, yeah, this is still in proximity. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and then two shall become one flesh. We talked about that earlier, one head, one body. And Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. So now he's moving from marriage, this, this intense, intimate form of community, okay, this example of submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, and he's enlarging the view here. Okay, so he's going from a granular view to making it big to the church. He says, this is the mystery, this is the gospel, and I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. This is Christ and the church. So, let's take this now to the church, okay, because that's the whole point here. We're talking about spiritual warfare, like, just think about why, why this, why this passage here in this book that we've been talking about spiritual warfare in, why now this specific set of verses in this passage? If you just read through the book of Ephesians, it's almost like, whoa, how did he get here? Why did he go straight to this? Um, but you actually need to read the whole book of Ephesians to see why he did it, but um Most of us interpret this passage, 22 through 33, in its own context. We just rip it kicking and screaming from from the context, from the text. Uh, and, And then we try to say, oh, Paul is saying this. Well, no, it belongs in this corpus right here. So why now? Why here? Because in spiritual warfare, the enemy knows if he destroys the most intense, intimate form of community that we can have, he destroys the gospel. Look at our society. It's being destroyed. And look at the church. It's being destroyed. Marriage in the church is also being destroyed because we have a wrong understanding of, of what this is supposed to mean. So how do we see intimacy, true intimacy, deep relationships arise in the church? Four words that you've heard over and over again uh, this in the past 40 minutes. One, humility. We have to empty ourselves. We have to be filled with the Spirit. When you come to this body of believers, when you come to this family, are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing, or sorry, are you willing to empty yourself? Are you willing to come with open hands? Or do you come in holding on to something? We'll we'll never be a true family of God if we're holding on to things. We have to be willing to have empty hands. Number two, unity. And this is where I should talk about, are you willing to sacrifice? You know, so many of us come in with our own desires, our own gifts, our own callings, our own this, our own that, our own theological preferences, our own uh, hurts and pains. And God says, lay those all on the table and sacrifice them. For the body of Christ are you willing to be a part of something greater than yourselves are you willing to be like Jesus in this guys if you're not willing to imitate God as he says in in verse 1 of chapter 5 then we can't even move further into submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ like you might as well just stop there if your answer to do you want to be more like Jesus is no then don't read further if your answer to, to being more like Jesus is yes, then this is for you. If your answer to being more like Jesus is yes, but, then you've already made up your mind, and you're going to see this as a skewed passage. So sacrifice, number three, community. Are you willing to love? I mean love like Jesus loved. I mean truly love others. Truly forgive others. Truly admonish others. Truly wash one another's feet. Truly carry one another's burdens. Truly be there when someone needs you. We don't know love. I was told on my wedding day, I don't know what love is. On my wedding day, who does that? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, You don't know what love is. And I was like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. I realized pretty soon that he was exactly right. I had no idea what love was. 14 years into marriage, I think I still have no idea what love is, and I'm way more educated on it than I was 14 years ago when, when we got married. Like, that's, that's beauty of love. Are you willing to go deep into love like that for other people? That's, that's what Christ is calling us to if we want true community. Number four, proximity. This is presence. And guys, we, we buy into the lies of the enemy all the time on these things. Humility and filling with the spirit, we're like, ah, it's okay if I do this and input this into me, like, that's fine. With, with unity, we're, we're like, why should I be the one to always sacrifice? Why should I be the one to submit? Why can't they do it? Why can't they be the ones to that sacrifice? That's a lie of the enemy. Like, we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. guys. We don't do this because someone else does it. We do this because Christ did it for us. Like that, a lie of the enemy says, says that you have to wait for someone else to do this before you do it. Sacrifice. When we talk about love and community, we, we think we love people, but, but we don't. And we believe so many lies of the enemy on that. And then proximity and presence, we're, we're like, I don't have to always be around. Well, you've just detached yourself. I Just think about a body. I was, I was in a meeting with some Muslim leaders this week, and I love it when, when I get to talk to, to, to Muslims because I can just talk about Jesus freely because they, they love Jesus. And, and we have this affinity where I can talk about Jesus. And, and so, uh, Seth and I were in this meeting, and we're talking to to um, these leaders and I'm talking about the body of Christ and because they asked me, why members? Why do you guys have members? Just they're trying to understand the church and, and I, and I said, well, picture it like we, we talk about like, a, like the body of Christ and picture it like everyone's a part of the body and, and if you have, and here's the thing guys, a lot of you guys, this is the question here, are you comfortable with a part of the body that God has called you to be? That's presence. Some of you guys are arms and you want to be a leg, and it doesn't work that way. Presence doesn't work that way. Some of you guys want to be an arm, and I was telling these guys, the the leaders this, some of you guys want to be an arm, and you want to do your own thing. What happens when the arm is over there, crawling on the ground like this by itself, detached from the body? It dies alone, and it suffers. Guys, the body requires presence, and proximity. We have to be attached to one another if, if we want to see intimacy arise among us. It's these four things. Now, let's, let's close this out. So stay with me to the end. Keep on staying with me. I know it's been long, but I'm almost finished. Stay with me to the very last word, which I don't know what that word's gonna be, but it'll be good. Intimacy, if we want to see intimacy rise up, humility, unity, community, and proximity have to happen. They have to. They have to happen. God wants you to see clearly, guys. God wants you to have clear vision. He wants you to see this passage clearly. He wants to see his heart clearly. He wants to see his love clearly. He wants all these things for you. The God who sees is a name that's used in the Old Testament. It's only used one time in the scriptures, that God is the God who sees. It's way, way back in Genesis chapter 16. And, and it's in the story of Abraham and Sarah who have Hagar uh, as a servant. And, and Hagar is a servant to Sarah and Things are messed up back then, guys. Like they're just trying to figure out life, <laughs> um, and and um, and she gets poorly treated and mistreated and abused, and she's forced to run away from Sarah. Sarah mistreats her, and and she's forced to run, and she flees, and she's in this oasis in the desert, and she's just weeping, and it says the angel of the Lord appears to her. An angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is a theoph, is what's called a theophany. It is, it is, a lot of scholars, most scholars believe it is an appearance of the Christ, of the Son of God, of Jesus before he was Jesus, right? I should explain that. Jesus in the flesh. Jesus didn't become Jesus until he became in the flesh, right? That is, that's when he got the name. He was always eternally the Son of God, okay? So this is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, a Christophany or a theophany. And this is often called the angel of the Lord. So the angel just means messenger in, in, Hebrew, in Hebrew. So the he comes and he comes to her and cares for her and, and is a lifter of her head. And she calls, she calls God the God who sees. And you know what the angel of the Lord says to her before she says that? He says, Go back and submit to Sarah. This is Ephesians 5:21 submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of the fear of Christ. He says, go submit to Sarah, and you'll be blessed. But you have to live this out if you want to be blessed. And then she calls God the God who sees. God sees you this morning. I know that so many of you guys have been hurt by this passage and how wrong theology has led to wrong practice. Can we be a church that tries to live out right theology and a right practice? Look at our church, guys. This passage isn't about leadership or women in ministry. We have uh, Ruby's leading this morning. Missy was leading the service this morning. We have a woman board president. Like, guys, it's not about. We're not talking about leadership here, okay? We're talking about God's ideal and His design for thriving and for blessing. And guess what? Hagar goes back, and she has a son who, who so many people have come from. And, and the blessing of the Lord comes, comes true. And she says, you're the God who sees. And God isn't the God who just sees you. He wants you to see clearly this morning. You know, when I, I went back at 11 p.m. that night to get my glasses. And we're going there. They're in the water somewhere. This guy's like fishing out. He pulls out like 12 pairs of glasses before they find mine. Yeah, I wasn't the only doofus. So <laughs> he pulls out all these glasses. I'm like, ah, oh, they're. Well, like, I actually couldn't see it. He had to, like, bring them up to my face. I'm, like, looking at them so closely. And, and they were my glasses. And, and guess what? They'd been in the water all day, and they were all scratched up. They were permanently scratched, they were permanently scarred. And I had to wear those the rest of the trip, seeing through these scarred lenses. The lenses that Christ wants to give you today are permanently scarred. They're permanently scarred with his hands on the cross. They're permanently scarred with the spear that stuck his side. They're permanently scarred with the nails in his feet. And he wants you to see that he did this before any of us did this. He sacrificed, he humbled himself, he he sought community, he sought unity, he, he loved us before we loved him. He did all this for us. Guys, the language of the king and the economy of the kingdom is not measured in who has power. It's not measured in who has authority. It's not measured in who has leadership. It's measured in these words. Sacrifice. Submission. That's what Jesus did. Subjection. He subjected himself. Servanthood. And Paul uses this word a lot. Slavery. That's the language of the king. That's the economy of the kingdom. Are you guys willing to do that, whether you're male or female? Are you willing to be a slave to Christ? Are you willing to subject yourself to him and to others for the sake of the kingdom? Are you willing to love when you're not receiving love? Are you willing to sacrifice when no one else is? Are you willing to submit yourself when no one may submit themselves to you? Jesus did that all on our behalf for us. That's the language of the king. That's the language of the kingdom. And so when you put on the lens of Christ, see those scars. See the scars where he bled and died for us and the king of the universe submitted himself to to the father us. That's the question of this passage. Can you do that? Can you do that? So let's do that together as a church, and let's, let's see that lived out in our relationships, and in our marriages, and in our friendships, and in this family of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you gave us the example for this. You're not asking us to do anything that you haven't already done, so I do, I subject myself, I submit myself, I sacrifice. I, I'm a slave to you because of what you've done for us. What you've done for me. And because you love me without me loving you back first, I can do that for others. Because you forgave me, I can forgive others. Because you were merciful to me, because you were kind to me, because you have always been good and faithful and honorable to me, I can be that to others. And I want to see that worked out specifically and firstly in my marriage and in my family and in this church. Because how can I even do that to the world if I can't do that in here? And so, Jesus, make me more like you. Make us more like you, we ask in your name. Amen.